0: Yeah, if they were to stop Rocky Horror from screening, that would probably inspire the birth of like a new terror cell. Like that would like be like a new but yeah. the weather underground, but for Rocky Horror. It'd be a bunch of people yeah. dressed like magenta in Frankfurt or like <laughs> fucking suicide bombing Disney buildings. Yeah. Class. That's morning spelled with a U because it's a pun. I'm Andy Sell, and you are listening to Ghoul School, a horror history podcast here on the Unpops Network. And I would like to take this moment to thank you for that. Thank you, seriously, so much. It means a lot. If you've got a moment and you feel like it, you could rate and review the show, but no pressure. Also, I have another podcast that I run with my friend Philip. It's called Look Good for the Boys. It's a horror gossip podcast, and we just started season four, and it's a lot of fun. Moving on. Hey, how you doing? Happy October. I hope you're having a lovely, spooky season, as the kids call it. I know I am. I'm having a great time. There's a lot of really great horror stuff out right now. A lot of good content. I really loved Pearl. Pearl. I dug Barbarian, I thoroughly enjoyed Deadstream, and I'm excited to watch it again. And that's just the highlights that are popping into my head right now. There's so much more, and so much more still to come this month, including more from this show. Today's episode is one of two that I hope to release this month, weather permitting, and it's a fun one. It's a different one, and it's an extra dreaded episode, but it's not your typical extra dreaded episode. And that's because today's guest, my friend and friend of the podcast and programmer for Art House Cinema at the Babcock Theater in Billings, Montana, Brian O'Strike, had booked the 1992 pseudo-documentary-style dark, dark comedy, Man Bites Dog. You may remember it. I briefly discussed it in episode three of this show. It's about a film crew in Brussels that follows around a psychopathic serial murderer. Anyway, Brian programmed it at his theater and super graciously asked me to record a conversation with him for the film's introduction when it screened. And I was super flattered by that. And then he had me on his podcast, which is called Art House Rewind, and you can check out right now. Seriously, pause this show, go listen to that. We discuss Man Bites Dog even more thoroughly on that show. And it got me thinking, hey, what if we just have Brian and assume that his film is Man Bites Dog? And I can go ahead and assign him a film to go with it, So we did, and the film that I chose was the not-nearly-as-dark 2006 pseudo-documentary-style film about a film crew following around a would-be slasher, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. And I don't want to take up too much more time here, so let's just go ahead and jump into the conversation between me and Brian Ostrike about 1992's Man Bites Dog and 2006's Behind the Mask, The Rise
1: of Leslie Vernon. All right. So, Brian Ostrike, how are you today? I'm doing good. I enjoyed watching these two films, and so I'm interested to talk about them. oh yeah.
0: Really quick, because this is a very different kind of extra dreaded episode, where it's not that you necessarily picked a film that, based on the criteria that, like, I think normally people pick in fact you didn't really pick the film. I was like oh, this is the movie that you picked for <laughs> your thing. So yeah. I'm just going to throw a movie on for my thing and we're going to talk about it because you were you were gracious enough to ask me to do the intro conversation with you for the screening of Man Bites Dog at your theater and then yeah. and then for your podcast
1: Art House Rewind.
0: So I was just like, well, this will be a fun experiment then to see if I can pair a film with the film that we just talked about. It's basically so that I have to do a tiny bit less work is oh. why I went with it. But my, I do have a question, though. Why yeah. did you program Man Bites Dog? Because this is a lot of times for like midnight screening kind of stuff, people will pick mm-hmm. outrageous titles, fun titles, What what we in – the cult film world referred to as bonkers often. Yeah. Man Bite's Dog yeah. is not one of these. Man Bite's Dog is a very challenging
1: watch. It it is. I was prompted primarily by the 30th anniversary, and you know, I've been trying to do a mix of different things with our programming. One thing that I've been wanting to do is Art House Essentials. Which is sort of like your Fellinis, your Bergmans, those sort of things, Kurosawa. So I kind of used this as an opportunity to do something that's kind of more in that art housey sort of realm, but still uh, appeals to a late night crowd. I've done it before with like Naked Lunch, which is a little bit yeah. more out there than your typical late night fare. That one did all right. Eraserhead, it's kind Ooh. of that one's just really. <laughs> that really is much more of a midnight film, but it does have a lot more going on in it as well. And yeah, so yeah, I just wanted to do an experiment and see how people would react to man bites dog because I, I it was like I also like being able to call it like one of those video nasties, and yeah. you know, people enjoy that sort of stuff too.
0: It's funny because yeah, well, they, I mean, those other, other two films you mentioned, Eraserhead and Naked Lunch, also both have a certain cachet to them like you know it's cronenberg and lynch so they're they're both films that have like a following and a reputation in the art house world whereas man bites dog is really like it's kind of an outlier in the art house world and in the like genre cult world so it's kind of like an underdog in both circles so i i I salute you for for screening it because it is yeah, it's a, it's a pioneering experimental spirit that would lead one to, I think, Absolutely. program that movie.
1: And, and like I said in our conversation before, it is kind of very film school-y as well mm-hmm. in the sense that this definitely feels like a first feature. And yeah, I think it's fun for especially aspiring filmmakers to check out and just see a different sort of take on the documentary form in that mockumentary form as well.
0: Yeah, like we, I covered it to a, a small extent in the, in an episode of the show, and it it is, you know, it's crazy how often that movie gets overlooked in the mm-hmm. the discussion surrounding found footage and pseudo docs yeah. and and that kind of space. But it's ahead of its time in that way in a lot of yeah. ways.
1: Yeah, if this came out more in the, around the time of like the office, the American office, I think it probably would have blown up a lot more.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny you say that. I don't know if I brought this up when you, when we talked about it on, on art house rewind, but there's a moment in man bites dog where yeah. the, one of the sound guys straight up does a gym in the office yeah. look at the camera in regards to something Benoit says. So it's very much like, yeah, it's got that sense of humor already. Yeah. And 30th anniversary. I mean, yeah, that's wow. <laughs> one, I feel old Two, yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those things. You look at that and you're like, ah, oh, dang, like, you know, cause again, this is the, the story around this, this film and the filmmakers is kind mm-hmm. of one of those, like, ah, oh, like they, they made this one really great thing. And not much else, nah. which we'll get to it, but also the yeah. film that I chose to pair it with kind of has some, some similarities in that regard as well. Yeah. So let's talk about the first time that you saw Man Bites Dog. Do you recall when that was?
1: So I was in college. I was kind of going through a phase when I was really gobbling up all of Criterion releases. And in our town, there was still, and this was even kind of past the prime of video rental stores. There was one in town. In fact, I think it only closed like a year or two ago. Like I think it it died in the pandemic, but it was in Bozeman, Montana. There was this place called Movie Lovers and they had a huge library of mostly VHS, I think, and then a few DVDs. Hmm. And I saw this one, knew it was in the collection, and then it also had emblazoned across it. It said, you know, banned, in, <laughs> you know, X amount of countries yeah. in that. and that. And so I thought, well, I, I definitely need to check this out. A buddy of mine, we watch it. So this was 2005, and yeah, we were in film school, so it was very much a film school sort of film. And again, like it also has like that Tarantino vibe to it as well. And it really stuck with me, even though I really haven't seen it since 2005 until a month ago or so when we watched it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. it's, It's a
0: very film school movie. It's one of those movies that I feel like most people who've seen it went to film school or yeah. you know or or we're interested in filmmaking or film criticism yeah. in some regard in some way what this isn't a movie a lot of like casual moviegoers or you know content consumers i think have seen because yeah it, as we said it, it has this weird reputation and it it's a challenging watch
1: so yeah. and frankly it's a foreign film as well that mm-hmm. i feel like You know, running a movie theater, I know that like anytime there's subtitles, like half your audience is gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, true. Very true. I mean, that's we're coming around on that, I think, a little bit.
1: So Parasite winning the Academy Award definitely kind of was a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And then I think pandemic happened and people kind of stopped doing that again. And then maybe Squid Game maybe brought it back a little bit. But I think most people watch the dub of that, too. So.
0: I do think that, like with everything, there's phases of it, mm-hmm. right? Like Amelie won um, uh, Lee, Best Picture. Tiger,
1: you know, those kind of were a period where, you know, foreign films were kind of having their heyday. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know exactly when it stopped again. but Well, we'll see. I know that decision to leave the... Chanwick Park? Yeah, yeah. Park Chan will be coming out. Well, he, yeah. yeah,
0: he, Old Boy was a, a success in this country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And The Handmaiden, when it came out, I know it got <sighs> a little bit of buzz.
0: Love that movie. <laughs> that was my favorite movie
1: yeah. of the
0: year that it was of released. that year. Like, yeah. hands down. I love yeah. that movie so much. Yeah, the, the foreign film is, it, it, yeah, it has phases of, of appreciation in this country. I mean, obviously, the film people. We pride ourselves, right, on the, oh, we read subtitles. We watch, yeah. you know, we'll see movies from any region. Uh, it's, uh, you know, Man Bites Dog, I don't think, was very successful in this country.
1: Yeah, it it made it over here. And I think there was a little bit of the protest behind it kind of garnered more attention to it than if they would have just released it.
0: <laughs> yeah, well that's fascinating as well because this is not the movie that typically has a you know a little scroll on the side of the VHS box that says banned in so many countries like that's the kind of thing you find with Cannibal Holocaust or Last House on the Left or or material that you know not black and white Mm offshoots of french new wave like
1: yeah (laughs) it's
0: not that's not the movie that you would call a video nasty and the people that would see a video nasty they're not typically looking for something like man bites dog it's no
1: no it's a very
0: different kind of movie in both of those worlds and and that's a something that's a thing that i think is very interesting about this movie and its legacy
1: yeah Absolutely. Yeah. So when did you first see it?
0: I think 1996, I want to say. Okay. I had a VHS it was still of it. fairly new. Yeah, yeah. It was still fairly new. And I think I had the R-rated VHS of it. It was one of those movies that I watched probably more times than I'm comfortable admitting. Because <laughs> I was into that like edgy, dark kind of stuff. And It was at an age, you know, you're 15, 16, where you see something like exciting that, oh man, nobody knows about this. And you just yeah. kind of like, you get really into it. And it was one of those movies for me. You know, I didn't watch it as often as, say, you know, the other movies that are like that for me, like Evil Dead 2 or Dead Alive or The Killer or Hard Boiled. But it was one of those movies that that was like, wow, this is this is something else. This is something different. And it's rough, but it's also kind of funny. And yeah. it's sort of... It's the kind of movie that people would say has not aged well because of yeah. some of the you know attempts at humor, which I hold the whole point of this movie is to hold that up as what's wrong with us as a, as a species yeah. and, and as a society. I I don't think the movie's aged today, and it's sad. Really, <laughs> it's bleak. Yeah. It's bleak in that yeah. way.
1: No, I, I think it still holds up as pretty contemporary with what it's talking about i mean we've just gotten i feel like in the streaming days documentary has had its own sort of heyday in the last 10 15 Mm -hmm. years or so and you know a film that's critiquing the form itself and you know the people behind it and what kind of gets left on the cutting room floor of these things that you know manipulation within the form i think is definitely something that people aren't thinking about because they see Tiger King and they're like, oh, it's so great and funny. And then it's like, yeah, they are defi- They have an agenda that they're trying to get.
0: <laughs> or, yeah, I mean, any really, the true crime world, and I have complicated feelings about true crime and true crime mm-hmm. journalism and true crime content. I think there are people that do it ethically. I think it can mm-hmm. be done ethically. The state of documentary film as a whole has been... Impacted, I think, mostly negatively by the the peak popularity of of true crime content. And, you know, I see filmmakers that I otherwise respect making decisions with their films that I would I can just see the face of Deborah Fort, my documentary professor in college. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just can just imagine what she would say to these people. But as the as the medium evolves the, the ethical conversations about it, I feel like are not evolving as much as they should. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's organizations in that space and people in that world, but I feel like, yeah, Tiger King, it's like, that's what people watch. And then, you know, they don't bother to read any like Bill Nichols or anything. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, we see stuff like documentary now as well. That's like, you know, I mean, obviously, pseudo docs and what we call mockumentaries are nothing new, yeah. and they weren't even new yeah. when Man Bites Dog came out. Obviously, the the bit in Man Bites Dog about the sound guys is very yeah. much a callback to the drummers in This Is Spinal Tab. Yeah, but this was, you know, before most of the guest stuff,
1: like waiting for. Yeah, waiting for Guffman, I think, is still a couple years away. Like ninety six.
0: Yeah, this is four years ahead of waiting for Guffman.
1: So, really, we had Spinal Tap, we had Cannibal Holocaust to an yeah. extent, Tanner eighty eight, yeah, and this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really. Larry Sanders was the same year.
0: Another show that I feel like doesn't really get the credit that the it respect deserves. It needs, I know, yeah, I know. I Bob Roberts was the same year as this. Okay, the Albert Brooks film as well. The, real life yeah,
1: you mentioned it yep mm-hmm.
0: so there were you know precursors to this and there were like parallel thinking films around the same time but this was ahead of a lot of the game and i just realized this is one of those movies that there are people listening to this who are
1: but I don't know what it is. in the dark
0: about this movie because this isn't yeah. texas chainsaw massacre you know even evil dead 2 this is like Man Bites Dog 1992 it's arguably not a horror movie so yeah so there are people listening to this that are like what are you talking about why don't you run down a brief you know summary brief synopsis summary kind of, what of yeah
1: Man Bites Dog is this story about Benoit who was one of the filmmakers on this Remy Andre and Benoit are the creative team behind Man Bites Dog Benoit is the main character in this, and he is a serial killer that these filmmakers have found, and they are following his exploits as a serial killer for a documentary that they're making. In the process of creating this documentary, they run out of funding, and Benoit says that he will help finance the film, since he's become chummy with them, in a way, and... uh, and it becomes this thing where, uh, yeah, they, they continue to make this film based on his financing. And he rambles off crazy things throughout the film. <laughs> super, super violent as he just finds victim randomly, uh, it seems. He finds victims and kills them and explains his process, explains you know how he disposes of bodies. And, and this film team just follows him. Until he kills another rival assassin's film crew and and they start taking retribution on him. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> yeah. what you could say. And it's found footage? It's found footage in the sense that you can...
0: The idea of what constitutes found footage is often, yeah. I think, up for debate. Clearly this is, had been edited which, yeah. when you take that into account, it's like I mean, even diegetically, yeah, even in the diegetic like reality, the,
1: the Cloverfield or the Blair Witch Blair sort Witch, of, yeah. you know, we stumbled across this tape, and it's it's yeah. much more presented as a an edited film. But but it
0: ends with that Blair Witch thing of the camera exactly. falling to its side camera and, and running out to the leader, and in that way, it's ahead of its time. You know, I, I guess UFO yeah. abduction was done a couple of years before, but you know, no one saw it. <laughs> Like literally, no one saw that movie by the time Man Bites Dog was made. So it's an interesting, yeah, bit of ahead of his time. Shot in Brussels,
1: I believe it's a it's a Belgian film. It it's a lot of fun. Like it sounds, yeah, it like just the premise itself is fairly comical in this you know strange world where someone will just make a documentary on a serial killer it is a silly premise in itself, and then Benoit is this over-the-top character that has, you know, wild opinions and is charming to a creepy degree in that, you know, he makes jokes about what he's doing, but also mm. thinks of himself as quite the the guy, quite the intellectual and everything that he just holds over everyone he meets.
0: Yeah, he very much has that cis-white hetero man disease of I am all things to all people. And that is my place in this world. And I am, I am the life of the party and the smartest man in the room. And everyone needs to look up to me and everyone needs to respect me, but also everyone needs to laugh at my jokes. And also people should be a yep. little afraid of me. It's that, that idea of like, yep. I am the most important figure here and my opinions are valid and my feelings take precedent over all else. And it, you know, I like to say this about Benoit is that if this were a movie made in 2022, he would be a podcaster. He would yep. be a Joe Rogan style podcaster because he just pontificates about everything and content warning. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, yeah. He's a criminal and a murderer. So not a nice guy, but also he is a rapist, a misogynist, a homophobe, a vile racist, like mm-hmm. the things he says are awful, terrible yeah. things,
1: and like races to the point that he kills someone and then asks the crew to move the body because he won't touch him
0: yeah, so that that's the kind of bigotry we're dealing with in this guy, but he he also it's the charmingness of and i I want to put that in air quotes the charmingness of. You know, but, oh, but I didn't mean anything by it. You know, oh, it's, it's, it's a joke. And I'm just telling it like it is like that kind of thing where it's like, it's constantly this idea of, well, I'm not a bad guy though. You know, this constant, like trying to be disarming about his stuff, but also like he is angry and scary as well. Mm -hmm. He's, I mean, he's a psychopath. He's he's a murderous psychopath. And that's kind of, I think, more than anything else the point of the movie you know the point of the film is is asking us to consider our complicity and our yeah. acquiescence and our and how we empower people like him in our daily lives uh, just as much as it's saying well the media sensationalizes this you know that's kind of yeah. just the package that the real thesis of the film i think is delivered inside of is this like oh the media sensationalizes this people will watch this kind of stuff but also Do you know people like Benoit in your life? You probably do. Do you stand up Mm -hmm. to them? Do you tell them they're being a problem? No, more than likely.
1: And and maybe even it's, it could also be, you know, much like he puts himself in this position of, you know, I'm going to finance your film. Maybe it's not that. Maybe your boss is a Benoit and you don't stand up to him because he pays my bills or your landlord or your whoever. Like... You know, you just kind of roll over and don't stand up for those sort of things because you're like, this person holds something over me and I don't want to be on their bad side.
0: Yeah, I'm scared of them (laughs) or Mm -hmm. I'm afraid of the consequences of confronting them. And that's kind of I think what's at the heart of this film, because it's sort of like it's sort of like David Holtzman's diary in that we're getting this picture of a privileged, disaffected you know, white man who thinks he's super important and i mean in david holtzman's diary there's more of a voyeurism uh, theme mm-hmm. going on but it is this like I, I i'm most important but it's that taken to the most violent and problematic and destructive extreme with Benoit. but it is still also kind of the prototype for the reality television star thing of the yeah I want to be a celebrity and I deserve to be a celebrity. That's very much the energy Benoit has. And he's very aware of the filmic world that that he's inhabiting here. He even addresses the camera and says, well, film lovers, you know, (laughs) and he sings that song about cinema. Like (laughs) he's, he's a goofy asshole, but also will kill you. If you threaten him in any way.
1: Yeah. And we get to see that mirrored in behind the mask as well.
0: The film that I chose to pair this with, I think is a pretty obvious pairing. It's probably the most obvious pairing I've done on one of these so far. (laughs) I like it. It works. It's yeah. It doesn't pair just in the obvious ways. There's some other little neat connections I find between the two films. Contextually, but it is 2006 behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon directed by Scott Glosserman and written by Scott Glosserman and David Steve. And you had never seen this before, obviously, because that's the never seen it
1: before. (laughs) I I, I'd heard of it, but I I'd never seen it. What was, what did you, what did you heard about it? Just that it existed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think just in the, in the realm of just kind of living in horror world, you mm-hmm. know, recommendations get thrown out and I heard about this behind the mask that was sort of a a horror mockumentary and was like, oh, okay, interesting, and then just never got around to it. So.
0: Yeah. You know, it kind of inhabits a tricky spot in both, you know, horror fandom and, you know, whatever we consider mainstream cinema because it's not it's not a particularly challenging movie. No. It's it is what it is. It's it's what's on the tin, and mm-hmm. hardcore horror fans love this movie. Mm-hmm. You go, you move through certain concentric circles, <laughs> and you'll <laughs> and you'll find the people that love behind the mask. It does have a following. It does have a fan base, but it also isn't like a household name of a film.
1: Yeah, it's not Paranormal Activity. It's not Conjuring.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not even you know Shaun of the Dead or. No. You know, I'm trying to think of other horror comedies because it it, it is a horror comedy, but it also is a found footage film for most of its run. It's a it's a pseudo documentary, mockumentary kind of thing. And I feel like people lose sight of that Mm -hmm. facet of it, maybe. But I saw it in before it was released, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I worked for a company that was involved in distributing it. So I saw a screener of it. And got really excited about it when I saw that screener. And then I ended up seeing it when it played at the Denver Film Festival. And it didn't open well. It played theaters. Yeah. It, its budget was somewhere around 250000 Box office gross, when all was said and done, was like 69000 So underperformed. Yeah. There are probably a million reasons for that. But yeah. it has found an audience. And it's basically the same thing as Man Bites Dog, except with a slasher focus. And made in 2006 in the United States of America, shot in the Portland area of Oregon. So it's a little more accessible, I think. The comedy is a little more comical and less deliberately uncomfortable. But it has the same questions about ethics and complacency and complicity Mm -hmm. and right versus wrong as Man Bites Dog has. What did you think of Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon?
1: I liked it. I liked it more than I thought I was going to, honestly, especially when it started out with Taylor doing her reporting and it was just a little too on the nose with the, you know, this Elm Street has been visited by and, you know, all these things. And I thought like, oh, it's just it's just not even hiding (laughs) the fact that like this is a world where these exist. And I thought, I don't know about that. But then, as it went on, I was I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's a pretty solid horror film, especially in the form that it takes. And it was fun to see not just Robert Englund, but also Zelda Rubinstein. You know, they they kind of were able to get some good gets with these legacy actors in it to kind of flesh out that world as well. But yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a ton of fun and. I, I might have to ruminate it on it a little bit. I just saw it a couple of days ago, but it's yeah. I definitely wasn't expecting that from the beginning. I thought like this might be a little too cheesy for me, but it, it ended up being pretty sincere.
0: Yeah, because I've seen it a number of times, but this recent watch going in, I was like cringing a little bit at the beginning because it's like oh yeah, I forgot the... It takes place in this universe where Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Chucky, basically, yeah. uh, you know. I guess theoretically every movie slasher is a real person, which, you know, you got to set some rules around that because Mm -hmm. there were a lot of slasher movies made. And if this was like as big a deal, you know, (laughs) like it would be huge. Like there would be mother's groups against slashers, like marching on Washington DC, much like the mother's groups that marched against the movies (laughs) or protested Mm -hmm. against slasher movies. But this would be like, Yeah, be not to get too bleak, but active shooter level concern about this, where people would be like, would would the Republicans be like defending slashers is my question? Would they be like, (laughs) oh, they're just troubled young men? Because I mean, that's a lot. That's the Prowler, my bloody Valentine, the fun. The list goes on and on and on. But the idea is that these undead killers and these killers are, are real and they're actors in some way they're they're mm-hmm. not really supernatural beings they're just you know following a set of yeah, a, a discipline really it's like a job with exactly. its skills and things you can learn and practices and behaviors and such areas of expertise which i mean that opens up a lot of questions so it's one yeah. of those things where it's like well you don't dwell on it and the good news is the movie does not dwell on it the movie no. kind of like it sets that up, but then it gets right into what we're what we're really concerned with here, which is Leslie Vernon, who is this guy who wants to be the next great slasher. Mm-hmm. Played really, really incredibly well by Nathan Basil mm-hmm. and Angela Gothels as as Taylor is great too. She's she, she kind. Of, it's weird because she kind of looks a little bit like Heather from the Blair Witch Project. Oh, yeah. So there's even echoes of Blair Witch at the beginning of the movie that even at the time, 2006, is like... Ugh.
1: Still fairly recent. <laughs> Still.
0: And also, people, I think, lose sight of this fact, but the Blair Witch Project, in its wake, it did not immediately inspire a bunch of found footage movies. It inspired a bunch of direct parodies and rip yes. of the Blair Witch mm-hmm. Project. So the Blair Witch Project was like this huge proper noun and all of its tropes were not yet associated with found footage filmmaking. They were just associated with the Blair Witch Project. So you see a movie in 2006 before any of the other found footage movies that really became big. It's like your only frame of reference is, oh, this is Blair Witch Project. So it was already kind of like, it has that working against it as well, but it manages to really pull it off. I think better than you expected it to be is the perfect way to describe this movie because that's how I felt when I first saw it and that's how I feel now. But it, it's it got something special unto itself that allows a statement like better than you were expecting it to be or better than it should be to mean a lot more than you really mean by it, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love the Zelda Rubenstein cameo. Like you said, first of all, that woman was a saint.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And we were so blessed and lucky as a species to have her. But here's an interesting little bit of trivia. Scott Glosserman only directed to date two other features. And one of them was a documentary about Wikipedia called Truth in Numbers, question mark. <laughs> like that's the title of it, yes. Truth in Numbers, yeah. question mark. And he interviewed Howard Zinn for that documentary. And that was, it's believed to be Howard Zinn's last appearance in media. Like, it's his last interview, okay. his last filmed interview. Okay. Behind the Mask has Zelda Rubinstein's final appearance in a movie. Zelda Rubinstein and Howard Zinn died on the same day, oh, January 27th, 2010, which also was the same day that J.D. Salinger died. But uh, that was a big It Comes in threes day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Scott Glosserman might be, I don't know, cursed or something.
1: A little bit, yeah.
0: Anyway, yeah, I think a big part of what makes this movie work is Angela Gothel's and and Nathan Basil. Mm-hmm. They're both terrific. And, you know, what's your impression as far as what this film has to say about
1: the... I mean, it's definitely saying the same things. It, it takes that turn that Man Bites Dog never did in that when it kind of breaks the mockumentary form, it becomes Taylor deciding to actually do something, which Remy and Andre never did. yeah. Um, And so there's that obvious turn there. But it definitely had the same media things to say, but it's also just a commentary. a, A reason why horror fans enjoy it so much is it's just a commentary too on the horror tropes in general and being able to comment on the things that, you know, the nightmare on Elm street movie or the Friday, the 13th movie doesn't show is this behind the scenes of what is Jason doing when he's not on screen kind of just playing with those tropes, the things that people call out, like, you know, why did, why did you go upstairs? Why did you do all this stuff? And just kind of putting a little bit of a, of spit on it much in the same way, like scream did. It's almost an update on Scream as well as something like Man Bites Dog.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it has like in the same way that Man Bites Dog has a lot of, you know, it's a pseudo doc and it's about a serial killer and it's saying these things about the media and voyeurism, etc. It's also got a lot of cinematic history baked into it. Mm-hmm. it. It has a lot of different genre stuff in its DNA. Even stuff that was kind of immediate at the time, like what we call the slacker movement, but the indie yeah. film movement, but also there's French New Wave in it. There's the Mad Young Men movie stuff in it, which mm-hmm. is what I call the, the offshoots of Psycho that are about you know privileged, violent young men who seemingly are antisocial and psychopathic for no reason other than I don't know their privilege or we allow them to be, which is you know stuff like the incident, private property, etc even the ones that are a little more sympathetic, like don't go in the house and some exploitation stuff kind of baked in as well. And some, some comedy that's in there, both in real, realism and neorealism, but also in postmodernism, it's all mm-hmm. kind of in there, but just like that behind the mask has found footage and and slasher, but also meta slasher and the teen slashers of the time. And it is taking scream to another Level. It's taking the stuff that Scream was saying, but being directly postmodern with it. You know, really mm-hmm. breaking that that fourth wall and really calling attention to the to the thing that you can only do in you know the pseudo documentary format, where you're acknowledging a reality underneath a reality, but also with an admiration. You know, in the same way, you know, some horror comedy. It has to balance, right? It has to walk a really fine line without dipping too far into either side. And I think this film pulls it off the same way yeah. that like Shaun of the Dead does or Evil Dead 2 yeah. does. But yeah, it's able to to do that meta stuff and call attention to the tropes. But also what I think is really curious here is the addition of Taylor, the character of Taylor as your final girl. Mm-hmm. Doing the, the slasher final girl thing, but removed a step. Yeah. And being able to do something genuinely new with that, which is interesting because like man bites dog, the filmmakers are all men. And so they're all very Mm -hmm. much like want Benoit to like them. I think. Yeah. Even when they know what they're doing is wrong and he's still able to coax them into gendered sexual violence. Like he's able to turn them into the same kind of monster that he is. Yeah. Whereas with behind the mask, because we have this woman She's like, no. And, it you know, it's weird yeah. because Leslie, like, there's rules that he has. Like, he has a respect for a formula for that is institutionalized to him. And in that respect, we find restraint. And it's a restraint Benoit does not have. You know, Benoit is maybe yeah. there's like a decorum to him. There's like a, you know, I'm civilized. But that's really about it. Leslie is like no I can't do anything that breaks these rules. Like I can't do anything that upsets this folklore and this tradition. So he's mm-hmm. not going to engage in sexual assault or anything like that. But yeah. it's still predatory gendered violence. And in the same way that Man Bites Dog is kind of able to, you know, talk about classism and racism and sexism behind the mask gets very specific with its references to Carol J. Clover's Men, Women and Chainsaws. Like they're they talk about the gender politics of slashers, like when he says that like, oh, you need to you need to find a the final girl needs to find a phallic weapon. And yeah. you know, there's Yannick imagery at work. And mm-hmm. there's that whole whole bit.
1: It, it was interesting the process that he goes through in and, and, and it again, it's it's almost like he's not just playing the killer in this sense, but he's also playing the casting director of a slasher movie. In that like, I'm looking for a girl that's innocent, but has a large group of friends and there's going to be the more promiscuous girl. That's going to be the first to go and all these things that it was. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, he's also the writer because yeah. he, he writes, the lore yeah, for his he, character. He, he writes the backstory. He nudges
1: them in the right direction with the yeah. microfiche and all that stuff just to create the narrative that he needs for his ritual.
0: Yeah, and he's the director and set designer, production designer and art director because he's rigging everything. Yeah. And in that process too, he, like, he demonstrates, and therefore I think the film demonstrates, something a little bit more than I think most meta slashers are willing to do which is a, an appreciation for the form,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not just the tropes and formula, but like the cat and mouse stuff and the backstory stuff. Like there's an appreciation for these pieces that make this genre, this subgenre that we love or that, I don't know mm-hmm. that I love. There's a, there's a carefulness to it that I really admire. And so when the fourth wall gets broken, well, When the fourth wall, I think, gets pulled back into place, more or less, when it moves from this found footage format to a diegetic, you know, narrative cinematic world, and we're watching like a traditional narrative film slasher movie, it really Mm -hmm. works. Like, it's still like it feels immediate the same way that like the better slashers of that time would have felt.
1: Yeah. But what's your experience with slasher movies? I think they're great. Again, I'm fairly, I came to horror at a later date. I was, you know, like 21 or so when I first started really getting into horror films. And Nightmare on Elm Street is what like really kicked it off for me in the sense that it was just like, I knew about it my whole life. But having actually seen that original film, it just really struck me as so imaginative and just, a whole new level of what I thought of as horror films. Cause I, I feel like the nineties kind of had a weird slog for a while where mm-hmm. there weren't a whole lot of great ones. The eighties had a lot of great ones. Seventies had a lot of great ones. Nineties kind of got a little too snarky for its own good and didn't really have anything until maybe scream that really kind of, and even that was a very nineties. <laughs> yeah. It all yeah. It's, on.
0: it's, it's really interesting because the, the, Craven specifically, and I'm glad that Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. I always think it's fun to see where people stand with slasher movies. Like what was their first slasher movie Mm -hmm. that really they liked? Because there have been several different waves, really, of slashers. And For sure. you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original 84, is what kept slashers going through the 80s. Because Silent Night, Deadly Night opened, and that was basically it. Like that was going to like – Yeah. That was going to be the end of it. Yeah. And then I think uh, two weeks later, maybe less, Nightmare on Elm Street opened.
1: Yeah, probably. It was like, yeah.
0: okay, we're back.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then Craven did the same thing again with Wes Craven's new Nightmare, more or less.
1: Pretty much, yeah. It was kind of almost a prototype Scream. And... Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. It was yeah. a meta. It, it had its meta elements. And then Scream happened. And I I like Scream. Yeah. I love 1, 2, and 4 I like mm-hmm. three. I gotta give. I think them. I've only seen
1: one and two. I don't know if I ever saw past two.
0: Three's kind of it has its moments, but yeah. four, I think is. I legitimately think four is great. I didn't love it when I yeah. first saw it, but you know, there is a lot that was left in the wake of Scream that I wasn't a fan mm-hmm. of, like the Scream legacy in a lot of ways. Of like, I think everything has to be self-aware, everything has to be postmodern, everybody has to yeah. know they're in a horror movie. You know, it got yeah old. And it got kind of annoying, but also it's like one of those things. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like it's Mm -hmm. done. It's out there. So now we have to go forward and it has given us a few exciting things. And I think one of them is behind the mask because, you know, these characters, they know they're in a horror movie because the guy who's the killer that they've been interviewing told them, you know, so when they're, discussing like oh what's the plan now like where should we go what was he going to set up for us there and how do we stop him what can we do to avoid what we know he's going Mm -hmm. to do it's all very like in the the narrative reality that they're in so it's not like it's a self-awareness you can forgive because it's a self-awareness of their situation not a self-awareness of horror movie tropes necessarily which Again, you start thinking about it too much and it's like we're coming back mm-hmm. to this, like, wait, Michael Myers is real, how? What? <laughs> like, are there movies? Are there <laughs> slasher movies in this reality? Or are they just real things? And all of this yeah. stuff gets too tricky sometimes. Like, it's one of those things where you kind of have to attack one angle of it if you're gonna do a meta slasher thing. And a lot of people try to eat the whole thing and it's too big for them.
1: It also made me think of two other films that came after behind the mess, but Tucker and Dale versus evil yes, and, and cabin in the woods. If we're <laughs> really, you know, like taking those, those tropes, but putting a, a reasoning behind them and exploring the different angle of, you know, cause again, Tucker and Dale is basically just the comedy of watching the horror film from the crazy hill person's point of view, which is turns out is not what the, Teenagers are experiencing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it deals with perspective and yeah. and the point of view in a the story. There's like a Rashomon thing going on yeah.
1: in Tucker and Dale
0: and Cabin in the Woods. Similarly, has a really uh, interesting take on the meta horror thing. Yeah. It's funny because Scream gets a lot of credit, I think, for for it, but meta horror existed. Even meta slashers existed long before. I mean, eighty one and eighty two, which was. 81 was the big year for slashers. Mm-hmm. Even then we had student bodies and pandemonium and uh, trick or treats and wacko and like a bunch of <laughs> other like horror comedies that were talking about horror movies from a you know vantage point of, we know this, we, these are the things we know about these movies relatively early on. And that's because anytime a, a story or aesthetic becomes like a trend immediately. You get that, you know, even, even the old dark house mysteries, like they had Mm -hmm. comedies, I think before they even had a term for old dark house mysteries, there were comedies (laughs) making fun of the tropes. So there's always going to be these, these things that are like, well, there's a thing let's joke about the thing. And what scream did well, was it managed to also make a good horror movie. And I think behind the mask does that. And I think, yeah, Tucker and Dale is a little less of a horror movie, but like yeah. Cabin in the Woods is definitely a horror movie.
1: For sure, yeah. The one thing I noticed with, I think part of it was thinking of the time period that it came out of Nathan Basil, who plays Leslie Vernon. Yeah, Dreamboat. I, I thought of it, and then it was like, I can't not see this the rest of the movie, was I was like, this guy seems like a fan of Dane Cook.
0: Oh, <laughs> no. kind of had that
1: same <laughs> mannerisms and the same kind of delivery in times that I was like, this definitely feels of its time, but I can also see that being sort of a character thing too, of that, you know, this is a guy that looks up to the serial killers, but also has his favorite comedian that he kind of embodies as well. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: he's got like a, there's a very self-aware, confident energy to him. Here's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like uh Benoit is like, I think his, he doesn't have charisma. Necessarily. He has kind of he's got wit and he's kind of got charm. Yeah. But it's like a goofy yeah. kind of charm. Basil is like like he's hot. And there's like yeah. a there's like yeah. a there's a confidence to him, but also like ah, oh, we're just hey, I'm ha- I'm having fun yeah. with you, you know? Like it is, yeah, it's just he's self-aware. He's self-aware in a very like yeah, Dane Cook-ish kind of way, or yeah. Ryan Reynolds-ish kind yeah. of way. He's like a proto-Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> He's definitely got that going on. But he also, like Benoit, is legitimately scary when, you know, he's got the, the same way Benoit has that moment where he snaps, yeah. Leslie Vernon
1: snaps. Snaps on Taylor and I told you not to talk to her and you're, yeah. It, it's interesting the way that you mentioned that, yeah, it, it it occurred to me that like Benoit is definitely someone that has this big personality, but... I, I feel like he's the sort of person that you just kind of smile and nod and hope that he goes away as opposed to <laughs> yeah. know, like yeah. he has his thing that he's going to say what he's going to say and it's, it's going to be profound to him and you're just kind of smiling and nodding and just being like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. But you don't. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I feel like Leslie Vernon, you can definitely, you, you can see even Taylor kind of has a little bit of, enamoration with his process until she until she doesn't essentially but yeah when he talks about his process and they're doing that one-on-one interviews at times like there's times where she genuinely seems like amazed by yeah. his you know process and that until she has to actually be face to face with it
0: well and there's even something in that too in that like the fact that this couple we meet Eugene and Jamie, Scott Wilson
1: and mm-hmm. Bridget Newton yeah
0: but yeah that couple are a slasher and final girl couple and so yeah. there's there's this precedent right there set yeah. in that and they it's not happening but they wrote a sequel that was also mm. a remake and a prequel all in one
1: <laughs> called okay. before
0: the mask.
1: Yeah, I, I saw that that was kind of in the endless in production sort yeah,
0: of Yeah, I mean, they did a Kickstarter for it and didn't yeah. get the money they needed and it reverted. Really? And, you know, they took it to studios and all the studios passed. They did end up making a comic book series of that story, okay. which I have not read, but I, I want to. But a big mm-hmm. s- spine of that story really is this like love story, I guess, between Leslie and Taylor, which is odd. But interesting, yeah. it's an interesting concept. This idea of the final girl with the slasher. But so that's the thing. Yeah, Benoit will say this racist, awful shit, and you're just like, "Good God, get him out of here!" But yeah. Leslie will just be like, "Hey, haha, Paradise Lost found it," and then you know, occasionally <laughs> say something like,
1: "Which <laughs> the Paradise Lost thing? I it's a good joke. I, I I had fun with it, but I I couldn't help but notice that like." every other book in that section was like business books or something like that. Like it was obviously placed. It was yeah, not, yeah. it was not, they were not he, in the right section at I, all.
0: His whole thing is placing things.
1: Places, That's true. Right. right? <laughs> so maybe
0: he put that book there just but so he could make that joke. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's like,
0: he, it's like, honestly, this is like Nathan Fielder level shit.
1: That is. Yeah. He's just
0: planning that far in advance, but yeah, they, he he'll say something like, I only keep pets I can eat. And you're like, yeah. haha. Wait, did he mean that? That's kind of fucked up. Like, and yeah. so there's this, I don't know. Both of them have this, this personality that almost obscures their true, like how dangerous they are. Yeah. And with one of them, he's a serial killer. Like it seems like any cinematic reference in there is either purely aesthetic or coincidental. Whereas Mm -hmm. with Leslie Vernon, it's like, no, this is a a type of character in a type of movie. And we're just seeing, you know, literally behind the mask. We're seeing like, what if that Mm -hmm. was a real person doing these things deliberately, treating it like it was a calling or a job and his dedication to that, you know, that comes first. This idea of like, you know, even when that scene, when he kills Todd and Todd's like, it's me. It's me. Yeah. Look at me. Look at me, yeah. you know, like hoping you you won't kill me because you know me and it's like, no. That's not yeah. what we're doing here. Yeah. But also these characters like the filmmakers, like Doug Todd and Taylor get mm-hmm. they get made complicit in a similar fashion as the filmmakers in, you know, even Taylor, he uses her to help scare Kelly.
1: Yeah, with the brick and the yeah.
0: Yeah, so she makes her directly complicit in, in what they're doing, but they get swept up in the novelty of it all. You know, that's the mm-hmm. other thing is it's almost more understandable than the filmmakers in man bites dog because, Oh no, you it's a, it's a thing. It's a movie where it's part of a movie. It's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a, a thing with references that we know and, and it is exciting. Like he, he, that's the other thing is that Nathan Basil is like genuinely fun to watch and his enthusiasm is infectious and you get swept up when he, when he pulls something off and he's excited, you're like excited for him.
1: Yeah, for sure. And he really transforms when he has the mask on to an extent that again, going back to like a Freddie or a Jason reference of just, you think of Jason as just this wordless, mindless killer. Mm -hmm. And yet if, if you let the camera run a little bit longer and he takes that mask off, is he more of a of a Leslie Vernon in this, you know, he's very excited of, you know, hey, I, I got those, I got that girl, yeah. I, I broke her back with, in the sleeping bag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did you see me with the
0: sleeping bag? Oh, can yeah. you believe I did that? I'd never done that before. I just thought I'd try it and holy shit, that worked well. Yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of a thing. I mean, even, I don't know if this was directly inspired by Behind the Mask, but- you know, the Friday the thirteenth, two thousand nine remake mm-hmm. or reboot where this idea of Jason has tunnels that he uses and that's why it seems like he can be in yeah. multiple places very quickly, you know, it, it sort of mirrors some of the stuff that we see Leslie doing. Yeah. With, you know, sleight with of his... hand or his yeah, his I have to run really fast and then and... stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 There is that that element of like, well, the audiences are m- more sophisticated now, so we can't just have Jason be supernatural. We've got there's got to be some some explanation to it. And yeah, I, I really wish they'd yeah. taken it the a step further and had it be like, you know, Jason, I don't know, what he when he hits when he hits the girl with the machete from on top of the dock, like the camera should just pan up and he can just be like, Fuck yeah! Look what I just did—like thumbs up, you know, or one of these like hang ten motions. Yeah, or when he hits, when he shoots the the guy with the bow and arrow while he's driving okay. the speedboat. Like, have the camera back there and have Jason like lift up his mask. And be like, can you believe that? I've never fucking hit somebody. Yeah. He was he was all the way over there in a boat. I I almost never yeah. use a bow and arrow. This I've only used a bow and arrow like twice since I started killing people, yeah. and I fucking nailed that guy. I'm good at this. Like. Yeah. Yeah, there is kind of, yeah, yeah. (laughs) there's a fun element to it. And I think ultimately that's why I chose this movie to pair because when we were talking about Man Bites Dog, you know, a couple ideas I had were Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which Mm -hmm. was out because you've already seen it. And then this 2007 pseudo doc found footage horror movie about a documentary crew following a cannibal called Long Pigs. Which is okay. terrific, and a listener to the show, an online friend, was like, "You got to see Long Pigs," and I was like, I, "I've been meaning to," but so I, I was able to see yeah. it, and uh, it's great. But I don't know what was your experience as far as like this is a double feature. Like, how do you think this works? Does it work as a double feature? Man bites dog followed by Behind the Mask.
1: It does work as a double feature. I'll, I'll admit, and you've already admitted yourself it is a little on the nose Mm -hmm. but when you first pitched Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer that one also seemed very on the nose to me because the whole time I was watching Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer all I could think about was Man Bites Dog (laughs) so it's like those two I I'm, I'm not even sure what a a better pairing would be but yeah it definitely it definitely works to the extent that we're watching something that's you know, mimicking more real life and then something that's mimicking more slasher Mm -hmm. conventions. So (laughs) I I think that they each have their own place in different ideas, but definitely tread a lot of the same water.
0: Yeah. They they're dealing with a lot of the same things, but yeah, it's funny because man bites dog has those like, you know, montages of like violence that are like Mm -hmm. jarring. Yeah which feels very stylized, but also Mm -hmm. behind the mask has these moments that break the format and become like, Mm -hmm. Oh, we're watching narrative cinema. Yeah. And they, they almost feel like they're serving a similar design. I think in ways where, where they're trying to make it a little less real, but you know, I, I think ultimately I chose behind the mask because after man bites dog, you need to cleanse your palate a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's for a sure. there's there's an ickiness. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's an ickiness. Yeah, running throughout the film. There's like because the thing is, when he jokes, it's not funny. Like some of no. Leslie Vernon's jokes are kind of funny. Benoit is not funny. Benoit is like he's like Freddy Krueger in Nightmare One or Two, where it's like he's cracking a joke, he's the only one laughing. It's like yeah. You know, he's like, ah, I'm just telling you can be honest with me. We can say terrible shit. And you're like, no, it's I'm good.
1: I I, I feel like there's there's times when in Man Bites Dog, when he says something terrible, there's a humor in the idea of knowing that someone is commenting on people like that, too. Like there's 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 almost another level to it. Yeah. Knowing that, yeah, they created this character to be awful. So when he says something awful, you're almost like cringing at the fact that, yeah, I know the kind of person that they're commenting on.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know that guy. I I, yeah. I I, interact with...
1: Yeah, I'm not laughing at the racist joke. I'm laughing at the idea that I know who would make a joke like that. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> I literally have heard people say the same thing he just said. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's also in the original title of the film, which was, it happened near you. It's yeah. that idea of like, no, this is... You know this guy. This is like, yeah. yeah, it's a movie. Yeah, it's not real, but it's also very real. In fact, it's so real it's mundane. Like yeah. the guys you know might not be actual serial killers, but this is there's the same kind of mentality at work, mm-hmm. and it's that idea that relatability. I think they're mining for the laughs, but also the discomfort. And God, there's that the scene where you know the scene. But the most troubling scene, I think, in the movie and in the aftermath Mm -hmm. where you can't tell, you know, it's almost a Cannibal Holocaust level imagery. And you can't tell which people in the frame are dead and which people are, like, passed out because they drank too much, because they partied too hard, because this is Benoit's fucked up idea of partying. Yeah. But it's so rough that it's like... Uh, we need behind the mask after that. Like we need a yeah. thing that's funnier and more lighthearted and and that has a, a final girl, you know, that has a, a woman like Taylor that's gonna be like, nah, we're not yeah. gonna let this fly. We're gonna we're gonna put a yeah. stop to this and we're gonna fight back. And yeah. I also just I like that behind the mask also ends with this what what has become like a found footage trope of the surveillance Yeah, the,
1: the surveillance, yeah. Which I wasn't sure if it was going to pay off or not at the end there, because yeah. it goes on for quite a while. And you're like, oh, is this just going to be an autopsy thing? And then he sits up and you're like, oh, okay, that's... Yeah. They're, they're hinting at there is a bit of supernatural in this.
0: Yeah. Or that he, you know, he just like... Sp- Slowed his yeah. breathing so that she thought he was dead. And yeah, I I like it. I, I love that ending. I love that during the credits bit with Behind mm-hmm. the Mask. I think it's like you're bringing it back to the pseudo documentary format, the the found mm-hmm. footage format and giving us this like payoff is not still not really a payoff. You know, it's like just enough payoff mm-hmm. to keep us wanting more, you know. I feel like if he had gotten up and then killed the guy, which I believe that that doctor is played by the film's production designer, who also looks oh, kind of like Remy Balvo, who directed Van Bites Dog. Yeah. But if he had got up and killed that guy, it would have been like, ah, it's too much. But like the sitting up is like just enough, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm actually glad that I stuck around for you because I, I saw the credits and was about to turn it off. And then I'm like, oh, there's more.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, plus you got to hear that Talking Heads song. Because yeah. you got to be like, how the fuck yeah. did they afford
1: this? I, that's, I honestly was thinking that of like, th- this must have been their whole budget, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't know if there was some kind of deal or something between yeah. Anchor Bay and whoever had the. I don't know. Maybe somebody wrote a letter to David Byrne. I, I yeah. can't imagine. But like, how did they get. The movie was a $250,000 production cost budget. Yeah. How did they get the rights to that song. I don't know. Yeah. They did. It was there and it did. did, That's the other thing. The movie didn't make its budget back, at least not in the box office. And we never got a follow up, even though one was planned a bunch. And yeah, you know, the movie is kind of like, I don't know. It has its fans, but I do think it's, it's one that is worthy of revisiting or worthy of a new audience
1: finding it. Yeah. And I do think that, You know, like I said, with with films like Cabin in the Woods coming out afterwards, like I think that there's room for people to discover this and find that some of the things they thought were so innovative in these later films, these meta films has been done before. and can enjoy it for that much in the same way that like I always look back at Black Christmas as being like, oh, this was the the holiday slasher movie before Halloween. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, and I guess I read somewhere that Scott Wilson's character Eugene is meant to be an analog for the killer from Black Christmas, the original Black Billy. Christmas 1974 yeah. Billy, yeah, who Yeah. <laughs> I just think that that's yeah, I fucking love Black
1: Christmas. It's so, It's so it's good. So good. It's, it's so, so good. good. And it also I played I played that one uh my first Christmas at the theater.
0: So. Hell yeah. Another thing about Black Christmas that I love is that it inverts the idea that the final girl needs to be a virgin, even before mm-hmm. that became a trope, because Olivia Hussey's character is, is explicitly pregnant. not a virgin yeah. because she's pregnant, yeah. but she is disinterested in male attention. That's the truth. Yeah. That's the thing. That's the true yes. mark of a final girl is not being a virgin, but not giving a fuck about if a guy wants to sleep with you or not. Like, that's the that's whole thing. True. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's her thing in there. Yeah. And it's funny, too, the final girl traits that Taylor has in Behind the Mask are largely, it's not, you know, a curse or uh, her mm-hmm. being observant or her being a, a wallflower. It's that she knows something's wrong because she has been interviewing a killer this entire time. (laughs) Like her sense that something is wrong, it comes from an ethical dilemma within herself, which is kind of a new spin on the final girl thing. So even in the the tropes of a slasher film, Behind the Mask is doing something kind of unique with it. When are you going to play this double feature? I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a solid double feature and... In a in a weird way, they're both somewhat ahead of their time. You know, exploring different avenues that I feel like other films kind of took the ball and ran with more than than their initial film did. And yeah, I I would gladly do a double feature of this.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Look forward at the art house cinema, Billings, Montana, any day now. The Man Bites Dog behind the mass prize yep. of Leslie Vernon double feature. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> after we see how many people actually come to Man Bites yeah. Tong, but... oh, I'm
0: really curious. And I want you to, like, text me immediately after because I want to know, like, what kind of... Because I think it's a movie that should draw,
1: you know? Yeah. But... It should draw. Honestly, I mean, some of the things that we program that we love and no one comes to. And then we put up something that no one... Should care about, and it, it it's sells gangbusters. Out. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's,
0: <laughs> it's always hard to know what people want, right? Exactly. What What are you really excited? What are you booking in the future that you can talk about that you're really stoked about? <laughs> I mean, I do want Things, to address that you are doing a Friday the Thirteenth, an ongoing Friday the Thirteenth yep. series. That I ongoing, think is going really every cool.
1: Friday the Thirteenth, we do the next in the Friday the Thirteenth. So we've got part three coming january 13th is the next friday the 13th and we are going to do it in 3d anaglyph 3d with the red and blue glasses even oh, i might uh, come
0: out for pro- that i might yeah, say i'm gonna it come out. i'm
1: gonna order some like custom made 3d glasses for it so oh nice Should i love be that great. other things we do a bad movie night garbage day that we do
0: garbage couple, day
1: a couple times a year <laughs> yep so we did we did Troll 2, we did Miami Connection, and then we did The Room with Greg Sestero in person. The next one I'm kind of looking at, if I can make it work around Christmas time, because I forgot it's a Christmas movie, is Jaws the Revenge.
0: I adore Jaws the Revenge.
1: I really like
0: Jaws the Revenge. And it's yes, really it is a Christmas movie, and I'm glad that you remembered that.
1: Other things I'm probably going to do. Rocky Horror Picture Show, Always, every October we do. 2019, we had 550 people there. Oh, I whoa. think we can beat it this time. Nice. Uh, Babcock Theater holds 720. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Babcock uh, Theater, Billings, Montana, Rocky Horror
1: Picture Show. October 22nd, be there. <laughs> yeah. Are you doing anything
0: uh, Halloween weekend?
1: Uh, Halloween. The, oh, the original. The original. Yep. Nice. Nice.
0: Yeah. Perfect. Uh, I mean... Oh,
1: October 26th, we also do a thing called Nostalgia Night, which is like a series of things you used to love, but maybe outgrew at some point. So we've done things like Biodome and nice. things like that. But for October, I'm doing Creep Show.
0: Yes, the original <laughs> Romero. Yeah, 1982,
1: Romero's Stephen King.
0: Oh, I love so, it.
1: Yeah. So. Always lots of fun things going on. It's honestly a lot of fun being a film programmer. And I wish I would have known that this was an option when I was in film school. Cause
0: you and me both. (laughs) You and me both. It's it's what I want to do. it so bad. I just don't have, you know, we'll see. I'm trying to, trying to get more into
1: it. Our theater started by, by a guy that literally had no idea what he was doing. Like he, He said, I just feel like Billings isn't getting all the movies that it should be. So I'm just going to start a theater. And he started by just Googling, How do I start an independent theater? And here we are seven years later. That's awesome. Yeah. That's
0: cool when that can work out. Yeah. I love that. Anyway, yeah. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad. And this is, I'm glad we got to do this. This is a different kind of extra dreaded than what I normally do for a lot of reasons. And I'm really excited that we got to do it and you got to come on and I got to. And thanks for, like, getting me an excuse to watch Man Bites Dog again, which people can watch on... (laughs) You're welcome, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for letting me.
1: uh But, yeah, anyone in the Billings area, Billings, Montana, hit up Art House Cinema or the Babcock Theater and... If you can listen to our podcast, it's pretty billing centric, except for when Andy Sell is on. (laughs) That is Art House Rewind that you can check out. And we talk about what we're playing and other local billings things. But I've got a bonus episode on Man Bites Dog with Andy Sell that you should definitely check out.
0: Yeah, check it out. And and yeah, if you're in the Billings area,
1: get Mm -hmm. Babcock Cinema. And I intend to do it again that one of these days I'll find something else and we'll, we'll talk about it.
0: Oh, I'd love that. That was so much fun. I was really, I thought you did a great job with that, with that intro conversation and the video. Like, I I think it's great. And I'm I'm really like, I
1: maybe we'll talk Jaws the revenge.
0: (laughs) Hey, I'll fucking, I'll talk, I'll talk Jaws the revenge all day. I adore Jaws the revenge.
1: It's so good. It's so good. And I thought that, I When I was a kid, I wanted to be Mario Van Peebles because I thought he was so cool in that movie.
0: <laughs> he is. He's. He dra- I love every outfit he
1: wears. It's so amazing.
0: He, he's, it's so, he's, yeah, he's great. Uh, speaking of, if you haven't listened to Look Good for the Boys, dear listener, you should listen to Look Good for the Boys. We did an episode in this last season called Shark Week where we tackled the Jaws sequels. Not the original. Why would we talk about the original? No. Everybody talks it's been about the original. Talked to
1: death. Yeah. yeah.
0: We talk about 2, 3D, and The Revenge. So if you want more Jaws the Revenge content, yeah. listen to Look Good for the Which, Boys.
1: They're uniquely different films, too. Like 2, 3D, <laughs> and, and Revenge yeah. are like their own genres
0: of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're all. It's it's weird considering sequels, especially, you know, since we're on the subject of slashers, like how formulaic sequels can be. The two, three, and the revenge are very different. They they are not. None of them are following the same formula in any way. Nope, (laughs) it's pretty great. Well, yeah. So thanks so much, Brian. It's been great. Yeah, it's been great catching up with you and talking talking these movies. Where can people find you outside of
1: outside of the theater?
0: (laughs) Yeah, where can people find you? That's not the Babcock Theater in Billings, Montana.
1: I really don't have much of a social media presence, so uh, <laughs> yeah. Listen to Art House Rewind. You can always check out, I do customize trailers for certain films too, so you can check out my trailers either at Brian O. Strike's YouTube page or Art House Cinema's YouTube page. Hell yeah, I love it. that can be fun. We, I mean, speaking of the Friday the 13th, I, I did a compilation of Friday the 13th Set to The Cure's Friday, I'm in Love. And
0: I'm, that's right. It's so we, good.
1: And when we get further into the series, I'm going to remake it again with Rebecca Black's Friday. It's oh, so of,
0: I mean, of course. Of course. You have to. Class, Class deceased. deceased.